0: We are in a sermon series about discipleship, zooming in on discipling, and we're not. I don't think we're going to take the turn that many of you might expect, which is, you know, God's called us to make disciples, not believers. That was last week. Uh, We're not going to then go deeper into say what is a disciple. We're not going into the Christian disciplines. We're actually turning, and we're for most of the rest of the series focusing on the churches. The way the church structures itself, the way it arranges itself, the way the church thinks of itself, the habitat and environment of the church um, that comes together to make a disciple because disciples are made in the fellowship of believers. That's what church means, assembly, gathering. The gathering of believers is where disciples are made. We are the collective body of Christ. and so we see that in scripture, we see God calling Christians to make disciples and God then declaring, and I'll build my church, he says. And and so the, really our focus for this series is going to be how do we as a body of Christ cooperate together, how do we structure ourselves and work to make disciples. And this morning's message will be a, a little bit unique in, in that regard, so... Um, I'll share with you a few reasons. So let, me, let me put the problem right up front. Um, so I think when we were a smaller church, now I, when I say that, when I, my recollection of when we were a smaller church is likely shared only by a, sm, a moderate portion of you, okay? Which is important to realize that uh, those of you, for every person who has a recollection of the way it used to be, there's two people here who don't. And they've joined the fellowship uh, at face value uh, with what we've been able to give them, um, but w- when it was smaller, and we talked about this last week, it had a strong family feel, a very warm a warmth, a spiritual warmth about it and I think that warmth can be maintained uh, in an environment where people know one another, but when you when you grow an environment beyond what people where people can feel connected and like I know that person, then it becomes difficult to to be able to maintain that warmth. People can be warm, it's just going to begin to pocket itself a little bit. I think that's how the church was when I, when I came in 2006. I came in 06, it was growing and it was exciting, it was still very much one church, one service, It had one banner over it. There was no subdivision in the church, but there were subdivisions in the church. People just probably didn't see them at the time. There were two predominant Sunday school communities, which some of you who haven't been around a while are like Sunday school, 85% of our church went to Sunday school back then. There were some Sundays where there were more people in Sunday school hour than they were in worship now i 'm counting all children 's ministries as well, but we had Sundays where people would come in to church just because they had to do nursery and so you might have one hundred and sixty three people in the second hour and one hundred and sixty one people in the first hour. It was a off the charts bizarre, good, bizarre, you were good and bizarre, but in that in that one hundred and sixty one service model. By the time I came in 2006, what there really were were about two large groups at different uh, generations. There was a large group in my parents' generation that flocked together, and there was a large group around Pastor Rick's generation that flocked together. And then there was about 50 or 60s that kinda, 50 or 60 or so who kind of connected around that. But I wanted to say, even then, it wasn't really one monolithic church. It was naturally saying, I, I can't know everybody, and so I'm going to kind of know this group of people. Well, we've far exceeded that now. You can't know everybody here. And yet, we've never really adjusted the banner of identity. We've always still held one, we are a church. We've thought of ourselves as a student body. And we have small groups, and we have Sunday schools, and we have Bible studies. But we never point to any one of those things and say, that is the subdivision of the church where your identity is going to live. We've never done that. And it would be wrong to do that because that's not. The subdivision. We just don't really have a subdivision. We're just kind of the church. It happened that way. And I think because it's happened that way, um, it's, it's grown a little bit more difficult to appreciate how do we care for one another in that environment because we can't care for the whole church. We, you just can't know. I, I don't know everybody and you pay me to know everybody. So you in a volunteer level aren't going to know everybody. If you add, you want to add. I'll add a few other things to that. I just give you a disclosure of the of the things that weigh on my spirit. As far as if we're going to say to the Lord, Lord, we do want you to grow this fellowship in a healthy way. If that's going to be our holy perspective, which it should be, then the Lord would say, Well, then make sure you can grow in a healthy way. Right? You can't. You, you got to be careful what you pray for. And we have to be responsible with what we pray for. And so I look at some of the things we've done over the years in order to care for the fellowship, and they have had um, a double-edged sword. When we went to two services, we cared for the fellowship. And it hard-pressed the fellowship. You know, because now there's a lot of disconnect. Sunday school attendance is no longer 85%. It's 60%. Now, there's a lot of good reasons for that. There's a few bad ones. Some of you now don't feel connected, and so now you can skate out to the parking lot after the first hour or just come in the second hour. Some of you have joined since since we've done all that, and you don't have a historically conditioned culture that assumes Sunday school, okay? And I'm not going to pin that on you. God bless you for being here. And some of us, are now, you know, we work, in one, we work in the hallway in one service and you come here in the other service. And so, whereas in the past you would have gone to Sunday school. So there's all sorts of things at work as to why, uh, why Sunday school numbers are going down. But the reality is, is the fellowship knows itself less as it meets over two services, which is, is frustrating for me at one level because I've come to believe that the worship service is the one place in church that you do really want it big because it is, it's the only time that we're meeting as a community where we're shoulder to shoulder and not face to face. really doesn't matter how many people are in this room. Well, it does in this room. It really doesn't matter how many people are gathering in the worship of the Lord because our focus is not one another. Our focus is the cross and what Christ has done for us. And we prefigure in worship service the gathering around the throne in Revelation where every nation, tribe, tongue, and people will be present singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's We're role-playing that now. We are corporately reminding ourselves that he has risen from the dead and that we are victorious in Christ. And that is a big thing. That's a great thing. And we've divided that. So there's areas in the church where we've outgrown any sort of useful division. At least we're outgrowing. So some things are too big and have not been subdivided. And some things should be big and have been subdivided. And that's what today is about. I'm sharing with you um, my thoughts about what maybe what the word says to us that might assist us in thinking the way uh, thinking the right things about this. So let me pray and uh, we'll talk a little more and then we'll turn to the word. Lord, guide us in our time. Guide this discussion uh, or these words as they uh, come off my lips and into the air and onto hearts, Lord. Um, may you be sovereign over, over their effect. And make us thinkers for you, Lord, and doers for you. Um, I pray, Lord, this morning you would create conviction out of reason, Lord, not simply out of... Uh, Uh, emotion, Lord, that we would reason well about your church and then come to conviction. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is important to share, so I'll try to be quick, but when I came to the church in 2006, I read a book one month later, so I was a total rookie, and the name of the book was The Search to Belong by Joseph Myers, and I remember thinking to myself, this guy is a genius. And I'm a book-critical human, so that's saying something. I thought he was a genius, but I was only one month in, right? What can I know, really? In retrospect, I chuckle at myself. Uh, The guy, uh, Joseph Myers, is a pastor, Christian thinker. He thinks a lot about Christian community. That's where his work in the church is, is how do we care for Christian community and belonging? Well, seven years has gone by now, and Myers is smarter now than he was seven years ago. I mean, this, this is... So I, I feel like it's worth sharing with you. This is what he says, essentially, and I'll be quick. He says that people connect at mul- various levels, that there's multiple levels of connection for community and for people, and each one of those levels is valuable for us. And he breaks them up into four basic ways. He says the first level is the public level. He says the public level is an area where people are gathering around some kind of outside influence. We're gathering, something else is bringing us together. Like an Eagles football game. It's a great example of a public gathering. Now, people look at that, you know, people painted up and with green, who go again and again to a losing experience sometimes. And you're like, how do they do that? You know, I'm one of those loyal people who, I can't... It is meaningful. I can tell you it's meaningful. It's true belonging. That's what Myers would say. Is, is don't discount that as shallow and willy-nilly. Something real is happening there. Another way you might say it is, uh, I, so I was, an, I was into Apple before everybody else got into Apple. And some of you people know this feeling. When you're one of the first people with the sleek, white Apple laptop, and you'd be sitting in a coffee shop, and someone else would walk in with their Apple laptop, you felt perfectly comfortable going, Nice, isn't it? You didn't even have to have context. It's nice, isn't it? And they go, oh, yeah. And you could have what might otherwise sound as an intimate conversation with a person. You'll never know their name, and you'll never see them again, but you'd be like, when did you make the switch? <laughs> yeah. And they'll give that, like, impassioned, like, introspective look to you, and be like, oh, several years ago. I just couldn't do it any longer. I am so glad where I am today. The changes in my life are dramatic. <laughs> right? now, that is a public... We are gathering around some outside influence. It's public belonging, and Myers says, and I think he's right, he's saying, this matters. There's real connection. There's commitment. This morning, this, what you're doing now is public. This is a, we are... You're really... right Now, if you're a visitor, I'm not saying this about you, okay? But I'm saying this about... If you call this your church, your people, if, if you, you're of us, this is a meaningful moment. And you participate in it and you share in it. That's true. It's real. And it ought not to be undervalued is what he would say. This is real. One step beneath it would be the social level of connecting, the, the small talk level. That's what Myers would call it. Coffee donuts. That's the fellowship time. He would say this too is a very real level of connection. People need this level of connection. I think we appreciate that in this fellowship. This The importance of having... It's warm and friendly, but it's non-committal. Now, throughout all of this, the genius of Myers, in my mind, is the fact that he points to the fact that the church subtly, very often wants everybody to migrate deeper and deeper into deeper relationships. And he says, no. Why do you need to do that? Small talk is really important. He says, in fact, it lives in your marriages and in your families. There's so much small talk in your marriage, you should imagine your marriage without small talk. I did it this week, and I was like, he is absolutely right. You notice notice a level of connection matters when you don't dispense with it, even when your relationship deepens. So obviously, in a marital relationship where a husband and wife are very intimately connected and very intimately related, they still come home and say, How was your day? Oh, the traffic on 95. would you believe the traffic on 95? I know. Oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. Well, how are the kids? Well, you do that. I remarked to myself, I ended up saying to my wife this week, Every day that we meet one another, our relationship starts in the kitchen. You know, she's making dinner while I'm doing dishes, or whatever. There's a family. We start in the kitchen, very socially, and then the evening we end up on the couch in the living room when the kids go to bed, and it's more personal, which is the next level. And then we end in the bedroom, and our conversation tends to follow that acclamation. And Myers would say that is important. You cannot. You're not trying to mature away from social belonging. It's important. It's important in and of itself. And so then he would look at the next level, and he would say the next level is personal, which would be friends, your friends, your close friends even. He would say that's an important place. That would be small groups and life groups, Bible studies, that sort of thing. He would say in the body of Christ, that, that's important, but it's important, it's equally important, but you don't have that many of those encounters, and they're a little more rare. And this is an environment where you're not going to give all of yourself, but you'll give some of yourself. You're not totally shielded. But you're not, the last level, intimate, is really the only place you're going to give all of yourself. We are only naked and with no shame among very few people in this life, if ever. And so he'd say at the personal level, that's happening, and it happens in the church, but the whole church is not going to incline itself to become personal, because you just can't be personal with this many people. It's very freeing. Especially, by the way, if you're, a little bit introverted, and you're like, I really connect in worship, but I don't like to get all personal, Myers would say, well, there's something about you that's perfectly normal. You only have, will ever have one or two really intimate friends. You'll have a few pers- personal crowds. A lot of people can live socially, and certainly people can get along publicly. And that's what he says. I think he's right. I think he's right, and I think it's helpful for the church and as I've been thoughtful about it, I see as our church has grown, if you imagine when you're a smaller community, like, like Loma downtown maybe even now, these spaces overlap. They're pushed down and there's a lot of overlap. And so there really isn't, in a 50-person church, there's not a lot of public space. There's not a lot of anonymity. You can't come and be a number. And we should, we should allow for that, right? It's nice in this fellowship to say, some of you are allowed to come here and just approach the Lord with us. I, my hope would be that you wouldn't do that odd infinitum, but it's nice to have it. but in a small, there's not a lot of that, but there is an awful lot of social. This is what Hokes and Baptist Church thrived on for so many years was that solid social space, that pleasantry, friendly coffee donuts, kind of we know one another, we care for one another, and then there's a strong amount of personal. That's what happens. But as the church grows, these things, the social space gets, if you don't do something about it, it gets thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner until it's public and there's no social space left. I think we've grown that way. And so... What I want to do is, my thought is, I think it's appropriate to care for various for the disciples. We're making disciples. Disciples. It's more than simply teaching them the truth. You are living lives together in the truth, and if you're living lives together in the truth, it's important to care about what this life together looks like. And so, I believe in all uh, everything I just shared with you. I think it's true. The question for me was, is it in the Bible? You know, is it in the Bible? And so what we're going to do this morning is so we're going to look and we're going to see places. Now, I am not trying, going to try to be dogmatic about this. I'm not going to say you know, the verse 4 is the social space, verse 5 is the personal space. I'm not going to do that. My goal is as we reason together with God's word that you'll say, yeah, I, I think I see the fact that our identity exists in multiple levels and that that's good. And then from there, I think the Lord will let us reason. God says very little to the church about how it exactly has to look. I think because culture and context varies across the face of the earth. So there's little that can be said. But I wanna, I wanna, what I want us to do is reason as we know ourselves in light of what God's, God's saying. So if you're in Numbers, we'll start looking at the word there. I'll read the first two verses. Now, this what I'm about to show you is all over the Old Testament. It's so mundane, it goes without notice. The greatest truths sometimes in Scripture are the most mundane ones that we never study. So it's anywhere. I just chose Numbers because it, probably some of you have never even been to this page. And I uh, thought it would be nice. Now you can say you read Numbers. Good for you. So here, here let me read uh, two verses here. Numbers 1, verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, now here's what I want you to listen to, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head. Okay, so what's happening here? This is actually how Numbers gets its name, the book of Numbers is named for the each, there's two, I don't know the word, two censuses, or is it censi There's two of them, at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. The book is bound by two censuses. And that's how it gets its name. But what the Lord is saying to Moses is, I, mean, let's, let's, I want you to account for everybody who's here before we go into the wilderness, and then 40 years later when they come out of the wilderness, the Lord says, take another census. Okay? What I want you to see is the various levels of identity. So you would, he says, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel. So here's this first identity. is this national identity. As a Jew, I am an Israelite. And that matters to me. It's not simply organizational. It is identity. I'm an Israelite. Circumcised on the eighth day, beneath the covenant of God, given to Abraham, passed to Isaac, on to Jacob, whose name was Israel. I belong to Israel. That is... There's massive, tremendous Jewish identity in that. That is why that nation has continued to exist, or one of the many reasons it's continued to exist even to this day. It has outsurvived a multitude of other nations by preserving its identity. And this day it calls itself Israel because of the covenant that God gave Abraham that was passed to Isaac and then to Jacob. That's profound. Okay, so there is this level, national level of identity among the, the Jews. And then there is, beneath that, a tribal identity that exists among the Jews. That is, in many ways, as profound. That the 12 tribes of Israel, they matter. They have their own land. They have their own ways. They have their own perspectives. They're loyal to themselves. There's record in Scripture of tribes fighting other tribes. Internal civil war. This is judges of the tribes rising up against the tribe of Benjamin because the tribe of Benjamin did not discipline one of its people, but stood behind him. And there was a war because there's tribal identity there. Okay? And then here in Numbers, you see the same thing. You see beneath the tribes are clans. And beneath the, and clans is something a little bit more than a family. It's It's, it's a it's a cozy conglomeration of families. And then beneath clans are families. Now the point is not to discuss the individual levels so much. as to show you that they're there. So if you look in verse 20, you'll see this is how the census went. Look, for the people of Reuben, Reuben is the tribe. The people of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, head by head, every male, from 20 years old and up, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Reuben, 46,500. And then it goes, of the tribe of Simeon, of the tribe of Gad, of the tribe of Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, it goes on and on. Again, I'm not trying to dogmatically present to you that the tribe is the public space and the clan is the social space. I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to share with you that our identity as followers of Jesus is fostered and cared for at multiple levels. Multiple levels. So we have something in common with every Christian on the face of the earth. When the church in Uganda is persecuted, at some level, we feel it. When it comes to our eyes and our ears, there's a sense that we feel it. Why? Because we are the same nation. We are the people of God. And these things, this happens, right? So I don't want to be surgical about where to point these things, except to say that it exists. I'll show you another one in the Old Testament. Go to Exodus 12. I think it's page 46. If you're Now, these are all over the place. So the, the tribe, clan, Israel, nation, all of that, it's all over the place in the Bible, and we'll look at it a little bit more next week. Um, but I, I certainly don't want you to think I'm cherry-picking. I'm cherry-picking for time, but the content is all through the Old Testament. Okay, here's a different way of looking at the same thing, though. The Passover, Exodus 12. So if you want to think of the Passover, how would it fit in today's culture? It's similar to your New Year's Day, your Independence Day, and Easter all rolled up into one. That's what Passover is. The, the Lord's going to start the calendar with Passover. He's going to say to the Jews, this is going to be the first year of your calendar, and you're going to call this day one of month one." And on this, you're going to begin to celebrate the way I redeemed you into, f- into freedom. So there's a lot going on. Passover is a big deal, okay? Let me read four verses with an eye on, I want you to ask, where is the Passover, where and how is the Passover being celebrated? At which identity? The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. Now, I'll stop there. There's details given about the meal in a second. Excuse me. But what's happening in the picture is at one level, it's a very national holiday. Assemble the whole congregation of Israel and tell them, this is what you shall do. That's not like Christmas. Okay, I know we all celebrate Christmas, but we all celebrate Christmas uniquely. It's not what's happening here. There's a mandate, a a mandate of uniformity from the, the nation. That's trickling down into the homes. So you have have two levels. You have it happening as a national holiday, but it's taking place in the home. you see that? Later on, you'll find the, the idea of clans. Make sure the elders of the clans know this, and they distribute it, so that you even find in these other striations of the people of Israel that... The Passover meal is being cared for and maintained and shepherded down to the home at each level. In fact, what you find is it is this intimate meal happening in a home, right? We might say it's a very small group. Imagine a healthy small group Thanksgiving together, okay? Imagine that feeling taking place. But it ends up that it's on the tail end of a massive national festival. So, what it turns out, if you continue to read verses 14 through 18 and 19, is that there was a festival, a feast of unleavened bread, and the seven days prior to Passover, you were supposed to gather as a sacred assembly, and no one was supposed to work, and you were supposed to all pull together and, and rally. And it was this big, it was such a big party that at one level, Joseph and Mary forget their own son Jesus at it this is in the New Testament when they're celebrating Passover, that's when Jesus' parents leave him behind and a day later go, where is he? Now that's, obviously it's not just intimate if you can leave your son behind. It's a big deal. And so what you have, imagine this, imagine you live way down, you, 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 well, you don't even need to live way down in Bethlehem, but you live in Bethlehem and Passover's coming, the feast is coming, and and so, in a very personal, at one level of your identity, you get your family and you put them on a cart and you get into a walk, but next to you is your uncles and your aunts from the same town because they come from the same town. They're all Ephrathites and they're all coming up. And as you converge upon the city, now the tribe of Judah is starting to converge and you're, you're on the roads up into the city and people start to sing the Psalms of Ascent. That's why they were written. So you have these massive tribal choruses going on all as you're convening into the city. And you get to the city and it's like, like this massive family reunion friend reunion realizing this is how big and great the nation of God is he rescued all of us that's what's happening here god's laying down the statutes for this and it's it's real at so many different levels of our personhood new testament Turn one more time, we'll do one more passage. I want to show you a little bit of how it's present in the New Testament. All the while trying to say, it's right for us to be attentive to being, is it present in a healthy way in our fellowship? Okay. Or if it was, how do we preserve it? How do we organize ourselves? How do we think of ourselves? How do we care for the kind of identity that that we want to have? Acts chapter 2 now this is, it's not the beginning of the church, but it certainly is one of the seminal imprints of the church. Pentecost happens, boom, a day, that day you have church. I mean, we want to talk about the difficulty of growth. They went from 120 people to 3,000 overnight. Now you've got to remember, I'll say this, especially for uh, those of you who remember the quaintness of our fellowship, at no point did they say, do we really want to grow like that? 3,000 people, and it is, and the church grew in number because Jesus is victorious, right? That's the theology we should have in our heart, Alright? We want to do it well, so let's watch how it's done well. Verse 41. So uh, Peter is preaching at Pentecost. The spirits come down, they're speaking in tongues, and Peter addresses the crowd, and he convicts them at the end. He says, right before 41, save yourselves from this cro- crooked generation, which cuts to the quick. And the people convert. And so it says in 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now listen to what the church looks like. This is a very common place to visit, to see church. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Okay, I think that's a pretty good example, a pretty good list that very succinctly describes what the church does. Devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. Now, again, I'm not going to try to be dogmatic about public, social, personal, and intimate space. But think of those four things, and they are public, social, personal, towards intimate. I mean, again, they don't have to link up hand in hand. But 3,000 people are sitting at the feet of the apostles' teachings. A little later we'll find out they do that together day by day in the temple courts. They gather together in a very big public sort of way. They stand shoulder to shoulder, not face to face, to hear the teachings of the apostles about Jesus Christ. Then they resort to the fellowship, and then they resort to the breaking of bread together, which is another smaller enclave, and finally it lasts to prayer. Do you see the natural inclination to, say, to see this identity working itself out at multiple levels? 43 through 45 kind of talk about the environment of the church. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. This is saying, this is not how they were organizing themselves, it's becoming their identity. They are saying, I am of these people. 45. And they were selling their possessions and the belongings and, di- and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, what's radical about this? You know, I'll say, like, I don't think it's teaching social- Christian socialism necessarily. It's teaching mutual purpose among the followers of Jesus Christ. Now, imagine this. Imagine you are a Jewish family in Jerusalem, and you come to Jesus and sell your possessions For somebody who's not in your family. That the radical shift of identity is what we should notice. Imagine you, like you have an extended family, and them hearing that you've written off the farm to a group of believers in the Messiah. That's profound. I I really think. That's what we need to hold on to here is how significant their identity is aligning as a people of Christ so quickly. It says this in 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So you have this image day by day. They were beneath the teachings of the apostles in the temple courts. It was a big deal, and they were breaking bread. It, it's as though the writer wants you to know this is happening at every level of their lives. It's happening in small personal ways. It's happening in these galactic public ways, and God, that's how God is growing the church. Again, I don't want to be dogmatic, but I just want us to see, yeah, the Christian life is lived out at multiple levels, and there's things that take place that are appropriate at one level, and some things take place that are more appropriate at a different level. And so if we turn to our own fellowship, and I'll, I'll close with this. So, you know, I, I say, what, what are these things? What, what are some things that have challenged? I think we have, in many ways, because we grew from a small community... Uh, and as we grew, I think that social environment, that, that classic caring coffee donuts, easy friend, that's real and that matters, it's, been, it's grown, and the assumption is, has been for many of you, that we, we're still supposed to know everybody. No, you're not. This is a public gathering. But we, we've never cared for that along the way. In other words it's one thing for me to say, no, you don't need to know everybody. A really good question is, well, then who am I supposed to know? And that I don't think we've answered well. I, I feel like oh, we should answer that better. Like if we're going to at one level say, this is allowed to get big because it's public. Then we had another level need to say, well, then what needs to stay small? Because it's social and personal. In other words, we cannot diminish one because we're enjoying another, we recognize they all are of value and they all need to be cared for. I think another place that this has happened, alongside of growth, is our transition. I've, I've been so reflective this past year of the gift and the curse of two services. The gift of two services is twice as many people have had the opportunity to come to our fellowship and be a part of it, which is Great. That's good. The curse of two services is that we're dividing the one thing that is not really meant to be divided. This really is the single best place that you want to be able to gather and enjoy the bigness of God's kingdom. And yet we've 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 since we've divided the one thing, it is not like they did the Passover in March for the tribes that started with A through L. And then in November for the tribes, L M through Z, they didn't do that, right? There was this notion of there are some times that we do want to have a assembly together and, and speak and listen and enjoy God as his people. And so this is a thinking message. It's my hope and my prayer that as you, as you think about the word, as you think about our church, that you would open yourself up to, yeah, I think God does want us to care for these different places in a unique way there's and I got no nothing radical except, yeah, we can do better, and there's better ways to do it. Amen.